Amen. Would you pray with me? Holy God, it is our honor and our privilege to gather together as your people in this place to sing hallelujah, halle, praise, lu, tu, Yah, God, Yahweh, the great I am. You have invited us into your presence again today with grace and mercy and love, and we ask that you would forgive us for our sins and wash us clean again this morning of the the missteps and the mistakes that we've made this week. Forgive us, Lord, as well for those things that we have simply failed to do, the, the things that we know that you have called us to do, but we have omitted from our lives because our focus has been in other places than on your will and your way in our lives. God, as we look to your word this morning, would you speak to us through your spirit and your word about how you have made us for a purpose? And because you have made us for a purpose, we can discover who we were meant to be in you and in your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray this morning. Amen. My name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here. I'd like to add my welcome to you to Faith Covenant Church this morning. If you are visiting with us, we would love to have a chance to get to know you better. One of the ways you can do that is you can fill out a connect card in the seat back in front of you. And if you turn it into me or Greg or somebody you recognize in the lobby, if there's somebody at the Welcome Center where the big flat screen TV is, uh, we have a small gift to give you just as our way of saying thanks for coming out to church this morning. But most importantly, we'd just to be able to, like to be able to meet you personally. Uh, you can also use these cards for prayer requests. You can put those in the uh, offering plates, hand them into a staff member any Sunday. Uh, each week, the staff gathers and prays for all the requests we receive, and so we value this opportunity to partner with you in ministry and in relationship as well. We are starting today uh, a, a new series called Made. As we heard in our uh, uh, Rise and Shine skit this morning, our, our kids are, are following this uh, series for four weeks in March, understanding their individuality and how God has shaped and made each one of them. And so we're going to partner with our children's ministry this month, and we're also going to be looking at how God has made each one of us as a, a, as a, a gift and with a purpose. And so if you have kids in the children's ministry, program or teenagers, you can also be engaging at home around the same topics that God might be leading each of us in. Made is all about discovering who you are meant to be. God made you the way you are on purpose. God created you with value and with dignity. No matter what those around you or what the world says to you, God has made you with dignity and value, and he loves you just the way you are. God designed you to have a meaningful role in this world, to have a a purpose to live out in the life that he's given you, and God handcrafted your life to be a reflection of his life in you. The psalmist said in Psalm 139, verse 14, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. I'd like to suggest for us this morning on week one of this new four-part series that the starting point for us in understanding how God has made us, how God has purposefully shaped and designed us, is to understand that the Bible tells us all the way back in the very beginning in the story of creation in the book of Genesis that God made you, God made me in his image. 
In Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, in the the story of the creation account, it tells us that then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. What does it mean that you are made in the image of God? It's kind of an odd phrase for us, right? I mean, we, if you've been around church quite a while, you, you know we talk about this a lot, that we're created in God's image. It comes out of this passage here in Genesis. But, but what does it mean for us that we are created in the image of God? Well, I, I, I think in order for us to understand that phrase, we have to transport ourselves back several thousand years to the ancient Middle East to understand the worldview of, of the people at that time in which this text of Genesis came from. And if you understand much about what the Bible talks about, what the world was like back then, you have to understand their conception of, of idol worship. You guys know about idols, right? We know about the golden calf, and they would craft these idols, and they would use these idols, which were images of deities in their worship. So an idol imagery gives us the clue to understanding what it is that the Bible is beginning to talk about when it talks about us bearing the image of our God. See, in the ancient world, an image was thought to carry the essence of the deity which it represented. An idol image of a God was used as an object of worship because it was believed to contain the essence of the God that it represented, which is not to say that the image looked like the God. It wasn't a representation visually of the God. It rather represented the will and the work of that God in the human sphere, in the world, and that the work of God could be performed through the use of an idol or a statue that represented the presence of that God in the world. So it wasn't a physical representation of a God. It was a representative of a God in physical form. You see the difference there? In the ancient Near East, we can see how kings in Mesopotamia and other areas would set up images of themselves in the places where they wanted to establish their rule and their authority. And the image of the king was supposed to convey the the present authority of that king in that region. And yet other than kings in the ancient world, it's only ever ever other gods who are depicted in idol imagery. It was, a, it was a form of godlike power present and available to human beings. Thus, as we read the biblical account of creation, it stands in stark contrast to the worldview that was common in all the other cultures around the people of Israel at this time. Because in, in this account of creation, it actually claims that as human beings, we are created in the image of our God in the same way that an idol is created in the image of its God. To bear the image of God is not a physical likeness, but it's a claim to to contain the essence and the will and the work of our God in the world, to be empowered in a divine and spiritual way to live out the purpose 
of the God who created us to carry God's authority in the world. That's a pretty amazing perspective that the Bible introduces into the theological dialogue of the day, don't you think? I mean, if you read back through the rest of Genesis 1, you see that the author is taking great pains to take all of those things that the culture worshipped at that time, whether it was the sun or the moon or the stars or the natural world, and, and, and recognize that all of it was created by the one true God who has blessed his people with his presence and his essence as his image bearers in the world. As human beings, what this means is that we're all created in God's image. Whether, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, whether you're a man or you're a woman, whether you're rich or you're poor, whether you're black or white or brown or yellow or whatever color you are, you are all made in God's image. And because we are made in the image of our creator, we have an innate dignity and value that comes from simply being who you are. And we were created with the capacity to represent our God in this world and in our relationships with one another. We were created with the potential to reflect God's divine character in our lives and in our relationships and in the world. And I'd like to suggest for us as we kick off this series that that, that leads us to three core basic truths that I, that I think we need to remember and hang on to as we explore the journey of discovering who we were meant to be. First is, because I'm made in the image of God, I have dignity and I have value. My, my dignity and my value as a human being doesn't come from the relationships with the other people in my life. It doesn't come from my success in my career or the size of my bank account or, or, or the number of houses that I have or, or the neighborhood that I live in. My value and my dignity comes solely from the fact that I was created by a God who loved me and created me with and for a purpose in my life. In the creation account in Genesis, humanity is differentiated from the animals and the rest of the creation by the fact that as human beings were created in God's image, as God's image bearers, as those who, who bear God's image in the world, we're designed from the beginning with a unique dignity and value that comes from God alone. Now, what that means is that since all people are made in the image of God, all people deserve to be treated with dignity and love and respect. Our view of human dignity as being founded in our creator will affect our view of how society responds to the human needs around us, especially to those who are sick and those who are imprisoned and those who are marginalized and those who are poverty-stricken and those who are defenseless in our culture. As Christians, we can and should seek to shape the society around us in ways that will preserve the basic human dignity that was created in each one of us when God made Made us in his image. The challenge, I think, is that we are slowly losing the foundation of our biblical understanding that the value of human life is based on the dignity of our created identity in God rather than the human rights that we seek to claim for ourselves. If you think about it, pursuing human rights doesn't automatically lead to pursuing human dignity. <laughs> 
And yet if we start with pursuing human dignity for each person, for all people, then human rights are the natural outcome of our commitment to human dignity and the value of every single life. Amen? I love what commentator John Walton says. He says, we live in a world of rights that has no sense of purpose. We live in a world of tolerance that has no sense of dignity for those being tolerated or conscience concerning what is to be tolerated. We live in a world of leisure and squander it on empty pursuits. We live in a world of comfort and convenience where we can accumulate anything we want except that which matters most. We live in a world where we indiscriminately substitute the cheap for the substantial. The biblical foundation of human dignity has been replaced with cheap imitations that focus on the chief end of humanity being a life of comfort and convenience over a life of meaning and purpose. Let me read that last sentence again because I think it's a powerful indictment of the culture in which we live. The biblical foundation of human dignity has been replaced with cheap imitations that focus on the chief end of humanity being a life of comfort and convenience over a life of meaning and purpose. See, recovering our sense of human dignity, dignity for all people, refocuses our attention on the fact that the deeper meaning and purpose of life as bearing the image of God is to love and be loved. That is our representative responsibility to carry the love of God who created us in love and to be bearers of the image of God and to share that love with others by sharing basic human dignity and respect to all people. God loves you just the way you are, no matter what your friends say about you. <laughs> no matter what you think the world thinks about you, no matter what, what, what your culture says, God loves you just the way you are, no matter what your church says or what some pastor told you about your sins and, and your breaking of God's laws. God loves you just the way you are. He created you to bear his image, and he's jealous for you. He has wanted you to be with him and to continue to grow into an image bearer of his love in this world. And that's the good news message of Jesus Christ is that he went all the way to bring us back to himself. As we discover God's love and his value for us, we discover a unique and valuable dignity in us that we then have a chance to share with others as well. Which then leads us to the second truth I think we can learn from being made in God's image. Because I am made in God's image, I have a responsibility and a voice. I am made to have a unique purpose and a role in God's world. See, the role that we carry as image bearers impacts how we then function in the world. In the context of Genesis 1, people act on behalf of God. 
right? How they rule and subdue the earth around them is all a part of how they subdue it in God's name. If we are God's image bearers, it doesn't mean that God has given us the world to dispose of as we see fit, as if somehow we are the owners and the rulers of this world that God has created. God created the world for himself. He gave us the opportunity to, in loving relationship, manage the stuff that God has created. This governing work of God that we see being given to Adam, uh, to Adam and Eve, to, to the people, right, in Genesis, is a part of God's blessing on them. In the image, if the image of God is a physical manifestation of his divine essence that bears the function of what it represents, then it gives the image bearer the responsibility to reflect the attributes and the character of the God who has given the image. And according to the biblical account, it's been, the world has been put under our charge to manage for its owner, not for ourselves. See, that management isn't with our own benefit in mind, but with the mindset that this is God's world and that as his image bearers, we're called to steward the world that he has blessed us with. Imagine, you know, you're going away on a trip and many of us have probably done this, right? And you know a a college student who would love to be able to have a home to stay in for a week, right? And so you invite somebody to come and stay in your home and you're like, hey, make yourself at home, eat the food in the fridge, sleep in the bed, you know, watch the TV. We've got movies and DVDs and here's our our Wi-Fi password and and just enjoy yourself and just take care of the place and feed the dog and, you know, uh, we'll be back in a week. When you get back in the week, you're not expecting that the house is going to be ransacked and destroyed and the dog's dead on the back patio, right? I mean, that wouldn't be your expectation. You see, the stewardship model of creation that the Bible introduces us to in Genesis leads us to think of human beings more as God's agents and managers in the world rather than the rulers over it. But because God has given us the capacity for God-like character, we can twist that God-like nature and we can assume that it's our job to rule over everybody else and to dominate the world around us. And how often have we seen that played out over and over again in church culture and in political history and even in marriages and families? We live in God's world And we've been given responsibility to wisely steward and manage the creation that he has given us. See, the story of Genesis is designed to help us know God more and more and to understand the deeper meaning and purpose of our lives as those who bear this image of our creator in our own lives, in our own relationships. It was never intended to be a scientific textbook that told us, you know, how God made the world. It's all about why. Why did God make the world? Why did God make you? Why did God make me? And if God made us with a purpose, then the question is, how are we doing at understanding and living into the very purpose for why God made us? And the last thing I want to say is that with great responsibility (laughs) comes a voice. 
If you are a responsible actor, an agent in God's world, then you are responsible to use your voice to stand up for the needy, to speak out for the less fortunate, to uh, argue for justice and righteousness in God's world. Responsibility means that we can't just sit in church on Sunday morning, week after week and year after year, and not have a heart and a voice to make a difference in God's world. Because the third truth that we need to learn from being image bearers of God is that we have capacity and potential to live into God's calling in our lives. I am made to be a wise steward of the gift that is me. See, while the image of God defines a, a role for us as humanity, as, as God's agents in the world, the blessing of God indicates that, that it functions as a result of the role that he's given us. See, the first function is to subdue the earth and to, to rule it, means to, to exercise God's authority that's been granted to us. But subduing and ruling are also associated with the prior function of filling the earth. God says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. It doesn't mean dominate. It means, it means bless it. Uh, allow it to flourish. Allow it to thrive. Imagine the potential that you have in your life. Imagine the potential that your kids have. Imagine the potential that your grandchildren have. How do we flourish and, and encourage the growth and the potential of humanity in this world based on the, this idea that we are called to be God's representatives to one another? I mean, this is really a striking statement for the Bible to make. Jurisdiction of the natural world was usually reserved for the gods alone. The, the humans were the, the servants who were called to, to feed the gods, right? They had to bring uh, sacrifices and food because these gods were needy and they were hungry and they were never satisfied. And so they, all of this cultic religious system was based on the, the, the need for human beings to serve these gods. In other religious views, the gods were directly connected to the natural order. And so if you fed the God properly, if you worship the God properly, he would bless your crops and you'd have a, a fruitful harvest. In Israel, however, Yahweh, the God of Israel, exists in an unrestricted realm of ultimate power. He is accountable to no one. He is dependent on no one. He is underived and totally anonymous, uh, autonomous, and he doesn't need our sacrifices. He doesn't need our worship, but what he wants is our love, and he wants a relationship with each one of us. See, in the polytheistic pagan mentality of the time, the realm of ultimate power was considered impersonal and could be manipulated by magic and divination and incantations. But instead, the Bible steps in and defines reality in a whole new way where ultimate power is revealed to be deeply personal because it comes from the person of God himself who exists outside of nature and who has granted authority to his people in the natural world to be its managers and its stewards. And rather than seeing the function of human beings as providing food and drink for the needy gods, Genesis turns it upside down and shows us that God is the one who provides the food and the drink and everything that we need for survival and for thriving in his world. 
People must now carry the work of God's development forward as we take on the mantle of God's image bearers, God's co-agents in his creation. We are, we are now asked to represent God's love by, by being fruitful and multiplying in the world. And, and as his representatives, we, we carry on the creative work of God where he left off. This is now a a human development project where we need the Spirit of God at work in the hearts of people, guiding and directing us towards God's outcomes so that we are understanding how God has invited us to to, to step out of the natural order of things and become co-creators with Him. At issue is the question of whether this world was created the product, as the product of random and impersonal forces or the claim that life was designed by an intelligent agent who had a plan and a purpose for how and why this world was created in the way it was. As we understand this, this argument and this theological understanding and this picture of the world, do we understand that what we're seeing here is that Christianity becomes so much more than just fulfilling a set of rules in order to please God and make him happy and get our ticket to heaven? See, God told his people, Israel, be holy because I am holy. And Paul encouraged the Philippians to have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And to the Ephesians, he said, be imitators of God. We aspire to be like God who created us. That's the purpose of our life, is to bear the image of God and to live out his character in us. But the problem is that because of the fall, right? That image in us has been marred, it's been vandalized, it's been twisted, and it's been broken. It's not that we've lost the image of God, it's that we don't realize how to live into it anymore. We don't understand its true purpose and its nature, and we don't know how to fulfill the greater purpose for why we were even created in the first place. We fall short of the full capacity and the potential that God has designed into each one of us, and that's why we need a Savior. That's why we need a redeemer, somebody who can come and restore God's image to bring it back to its original intention, to teach us how to live it out in our lives and in our our, our marriages, in our families, in new and in healthy ways. Colossians 1.15 reminds us the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is the one true physical representative of the creator God who made you and me and sent his son Jesus to be his agent of love and mercy and grace on our behalf. Jesus fulfills God's original intention for you and me, for all of humanity. In Christ Jesus, God has restored and is restoring the image of God in each one of us. That's why Ephesians 2, 8 and 10 says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. This word here relates directly back to the story in Genesis and the creation account. We are God's handiwork. We are God's workmanship. We are God's artwork. We are God's masterpiece. We are God's image bearers. He has created us and designed us to reflect his presence and his power and his love to all those in our lives that we would meet. 
as God is inviting us to look back and to remember how he has made us to be his image bearers and why he has done so. I want to invite you to join us on this journey of discovering for yourself who God has designed you to be in this day and in the season ahead. God made you the way you are on purpose. God created you with value and dignity just as you are. God handcrafted you to have a meaningful role in his world. God designed your life to be a reflection of his life in you. And you know how the chapter ends? God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Let's pray. God, forgive us for the ways that we often focus on the wrong things and in our desire for our rights and our comfort and our own happiness, we can actually become more dissatisfied with the life that you've given us in this world. In this series ahead, as we remember why and how we are made in your image, would you give us the courage and the strength to remember uh, that you have given us a purpose and a calling in our lives in this world. And as we bear your image, as we are your agents of love and grace to others, would you restore our souls and remind us of your deep love and enduring passion for each one of us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.